Big news. This Wellness Couch podcast is proudly brought to you by the Wellness Summit, returning this year to Melbourne on August 17 and 18. Early bird tickets and all info at thewellnesssummit.com. Hi, I'm Kim Forrester and welcome to Eudaimonia, the podcast that is all about flourishing. More than just the mundane or pleasure and pain, Eudaimonia calls for us to create a good life. It's about fulfillment, inspiration, joy. So plug in, relax and get ready for the goodness as we explore the characteristics and daily practices that can help you, your loved ones and your community flourish. What or who do you have faith in? Do you have a spiritual boy that you can cling to when life's waters become particularly stormy? Or that inspires you to be a greater version of yourself? Reza Aslan is a world-renowned writer, commentator, professor, producer and scholar of religions. His work has included the television series Believer on CNN and Rough Draft, which premiered on Ovation. Reza is author of several international best-selling books, and his latest publication, released last year, is titled God, A Human History. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Reza to the Eudaimonia podcast to talk about faith and to explore how an authentic spiritual connection can help us live more fulfilled, more flourishing lives. Reza, it's such an honor and a delight to have you here on the Eudaimonia podcast. Welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm really, really excited about this particular topic. Faith is something that is very, very deeply entwined with who I am as a person, although I can't necessarily define my faith in the way that others can. And you've spent the last 20 years or so studying theology, studying religious studies and other forms of spirituality. Many people would assume that faith is aligned with religion or at least that it's uh, religion adjacent. Is this true in your view, or do you feel that faith can actually exist outside of traditional religious practice and belief? Well, as a matter of fact, the foundation of my um, theories and work and writing is predicated on um, the distinction between religion and faith. These are not the same thing, and I think that they often get confused for being one and the same, and you only have to listen to the way that people talk when they say things like, you know, I believe in Christianity or I believe uh, in the Quran as though those are things to believe in Mm. as opposed to ways of expressing faith. I always say that you should think of religion, you should think of faith as deeply personal and individualistic, um, as ineffable and difficult to define precisely the way that you're talking about it. And you should think of religion as the language that you use to express your faith. It's Mm. a language made up of symbols and metaphors. It's often institutionalized. And it provides people of faith a means to communicate to themselves and to other like-minded people what is fundamentally an inexpressible experience, the the experience of faith. The other thing that I think is important to understand just from an anthropological perspective is that what we refer to as faith, or perhaps put in a different way, the religious impulse, the impulse towards 
uh, religious expression. That um, goes back hundreds of thousands of years. It goes back deep into um, our evolutionary past. In fact, as I write about in my uh, newest book, it predates the existence of our species by hundreds of thousands of years. Wow. Religion, however, by which we mean an mm. institutionalized, hierarchical, controlled, systematic set of symbols and metaphors, our best estimate is maybe anywhere between 11,000 and 14,000 years old. But faith, as I say, we can find expressions of faith in our Neanderthal cousins. We can find it with a little less certainty um, in Cro-Magnum. Uh, you know, so not only are they quite different things, they should be different things. You should experience them as fundamentally different. Okay, so I want to ask you a question then. So you're saying that faith is not religion. Religion is the language through which you express your inherent faith. And I completely, I completely get that. Many years ago, I penned an article and it was called Why My Faith Has No Name. And um, two of the reasons that I offered was that firstly, I see my faith as being deeply personal and unique to me. I'm not sure that anyone else sees the world or sees the universe the way that I do. And secondly, as I expressed before, my faith is often beyond words. I can't tell you what I have faith in most of the time or what that sense of faith is actually referring to. So for me, as you just explained there, Reza, faith is is indefinable in many ways, and yet we're often compelled to label our faith. If you fill out any government document there at the top of the page, are all the little tick boxes, and we're asked to claim our faith, Muslim, Christian, Baha'i, atheist, do you feel that in attaching to labels like that, we're actually dishonoring or diluting our personal faith? Or in your experience, is there a benefit to aligning one's own faith to a larger group? I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. On the one hand, of course, I think if you think about religion as the language through which we express faith, you fundamentally recognize how important religion actually is. Mm. Um, you know, it, what, when we're talking about faith, we are talking about essentially an emotion, um, faith is not a rational response uh, to experience and, and reality. Faith is an emotional response. It, it resides, if you will, where all other emotions reside in this kind of nebulous soup that is, you know, your your neurological impulses. You can't explain faith any more than you can explain love. I mean, you can talk about. Um, your experiences, things that have happened to you uh, that that make you feel a particular emotion, but it's extraordinarily difficult to express that emotion to someone who hasn't al hasn't also experienced it. And so, we have a pretty uh, well defined uh, um, language uh, when it comes to talking about love. And what religion is, is a well-defined language to talk about faith, which in many ways is even more complicated an expression than love. And so those languages are supremely important if what you want is to communicate 
your faith to other people. If that's not important to you, if faith is private and personal, it's not communal, then it's fine. You don't, you don't need to do so. But if you do want to communicate your faith, it helps to have a set of symbols and metaphors that other people understand with which to communicate that expression. The Buddha once said that if you want to strike water, you don't dig six one-foot wells, mm-hmm. you dig one six-foot well. But again, what the Buddha meant was, while the well should be yours and individual and deep, it's equally as important to recognize that the water that you are drinking from, faith, is the water that everybody is drinking from. I, I think that's, that's the best way to think about it. Is religion necessary to have a deep and meaningful faith experience? No. But it is extraordinarily helpful to make sense of that experience and, more importantly, to communicate that experience to other like-minded individuals. Okay, so most of us fall into the religion that we're born into. And so let's talk about the people who are perhaps speaking the language of their particular religion. They are partaking in those practices and rituals and they talk about those particular metaphors. But what if that religion is not necessarily expressing their inner personal unique faith? Would you say that that's something that occurs in our society? Yes, in fact, I would say that that is the norm. That people, when I say people confuse their faith with their religion, that's pretty much what I mean, is that they uh, sort of allow their religious identity uh, to subsume their personal faith. Mm. Um, You know, researchers and scholars like myself who who sort of uh, are interested in in mapping and marking the way that people um, express and identify their religious beliefs – Uh, have always come across this sort of profound disconnect between the acceptance of a religion and the acceptance of that religion's core dogma Mm. and beliefs. Mm. I'm afraid to say that I don't have the stats right here in front of me. I've, I've written about them before, but an enormously large percentage of, of Catholics, for instance, believe in divorce. Mm. Uh, a large number of Catholics believe in abortion. You know, these are core doctrines of the Catholic religion, but for many, many Catholics, they have no weight whatsoever. A large number of atheists, nearly 11%, believe in a, in a supreme being. I think what happens is that religion as a form of identity, like all forms of identity, can easily become all-encompassing. And so you very easily, you know, submit to the trappings of the religion, the communal aspects of it, the collective identity that it provides, uh, without often really recognizing the depth, the, the faith in, our, in the parlance that we're using that that religion is supposed to be expressing. That's a, I would say it's it's the most common way in which people experience religion. That's such a powerful thing, I think, for my listeners to hear and acknowledge and understand because there are quite a few people on this planet who have turned away from faith because they see the hypocrisy or they see the disconnect and the, the inauthenticity 
of some people who choose religion. But you're saying here, so let's put religion aside um, until you've actually established what your faith is. Then you can go out and choose which religion you would like to use to express that faith. Is that right? I think that's a great way of putting it. That's a great way of putting it. Okay. Is what do you believe? First start there. And then, if you'd like, you can use the symbols and metaphors that are available to you to express that belief in terms that allow you to not just understand it uh, more um, coherently, but also, frankly, to express and experience it um, more coherently. Mm -hmm. Again, when we're talking about things such as faith or the divine or transcendence, these are airy ideas. They, they, uh, <laughs> they don't have a lot of, you know, substance and weight to them. And one needs, I think, assistance in trying to make sense of these ideas, to express these ideas. Mm. Well, there are hundreds of religions in the world that do precisely this. And as long as you're your relationship with your religion is utilitarian in the sense that it is, you know, essentially the platform through which you express your faith, then that's a healthy relationship with religion. I think what happens often, as I said before, is that people put their faith in their religion. Mm. And that's where you that's where things go wrong yeah the flow is in reverse so let's talk about all these religions and and worldviews and faiths that you have explored and studied over the years as you're saying there the the rituals and the practices and the metaphors are all just a language so let's come back to the people of faith that you have met what do they all have in common in your experience i think what unites uh what we can sort of in a very simplistic way, call people of faith as opposed to people who you know refuse to express a faith. Mm -hmm. The fundamental dividing line has to do not with belief in God or any kind of deity, but in the idea of materialism, right? So yeah. really, the dividing line comes down to this. Do you believe that your experience of the world um, exists only in the material realm, that reality can only be experienced and understood um, through your empirical senses, that nothing exists beyond the material realm that I can experience, mm -hmm. uh, empirically experience. Do you believe that, yes or no? If you believe that, well, then you're an atheist, you're a materialist, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Good mm. for you. Go about, your, go about your business. If you don't believe that, if you believe, no, there is a transcendent reality, there is a reality behind the material world, um, then you have to ask yourself a second question that kind of uh, comes out of that, which is, what do you want to do about it? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, just simply believing that there is more to life than the material world, believing that there is a transcendent reality, that all that makes you is an agnostic. Do, do you want to experience that thing? 
do you want to commune with it? Do you want to feel it? Do you want to know it? Mm. If the answer to that question is yes, it's only then that religion comes in. And again, at that point, it's okay. Well, there are some tools that'll help you do that. Those tools have been around in some cases for thousands and thousands of years. Those tools are nothing more than symbols and metaphors to help you express what is fundamentally inexpressible. And if your experience of religion is anything more than that, you're not doing it right. Mm. Um, so let's talk about people who choose to or at least claim to not have any faith at all. First of all, it strikes me that maybe atheists do have a faith. It might be a faith in the in the human spirit or in human ingenuity. Do you do you not see that as a form of faith in itself? Uh, I would put it a little bit different. I would say I think oftentimes people you know, say that atheists and believers are about as far apart as possible, or science and religion is about as far apart as possible. I reject both of those mm. dichotomies. I think what atheism is built upon, what both atheism and any kind of religious belief, um, what they are both predicated upon, is a set of unprovable postulates <laughs> about the, the nature of reality. Right. The difference, of course, is that the scientific mindset is built upon not just evidence, but more, I think, um, elementally, uh, the desire to disprove, right? Science is based on the desire to disprove, not the desire to prove. Whereas religion uh, tends to eschew that sort of the proactive disproving <laughs> uh, notion of science, right? That yes. like n nothing can be accepted because you have to constantly try to disprove it. So I think, you know, they, they are different modes of knowing, if you will, but they are not as diametrically opposed as I think people think they are. Um, atheism does rest on certain assumptions, right? And those assumptions are as unprovable as the assumptions made by a person mm. of faith. Indeed they are. In fact, um, I have a wonderful little statistic that I like to throw around, and it's 4.6%, because I know that um, an atheist point of view can very much be predicated on this idea that we know how science works and we know the physics of the universe. And yet uh, cosmologists have recently announced that, well, actually, we only know and understand 4.6% of the composition of the universe. That's what that, mm -hmm. the stuff that we call matter and energy. Sure, we've pretty much got that down pat. But more than 95% of the universe, what the universe is made of, what is running through us and of us and in us and from us and to us, we actually don't even know where to begin looking for this stuff. So. Right. So you're saying there that atheism really is just as unable to be proven as any faith or worldview or religion. And I truly believe that to be true in this day and age with our with our scientific ignorance as a species. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I would agree with that 100%. So here's a curly one for you and you may not be able to answer this because you can't see into the hearts of other people. In your view, 
do you feel that those who choose not to have a faith or claim not to have a faith, are they neglecting or undermining a part of themselves somehow? Let me, if I may, put this in scientific terms. Sure. Uh, you know, what I always say is that you always, you always argue and debate people on their terms, not on your terms. Right. So let's use just pure science in order to have this conversation. Here's what we know. Uh, belief in the soul, that is, belief in um, an inner essence that is separate and distinct from our material selves, is a belief that is absolutely universal. It is a belief that has arisen in every culture, in every part of the world, and throughout all of time. In mm. fact, as I mentioned earlier, it is a belief that predates the existence of our species by hundreds of thousands of years. We have material evidence uh, of Neanderthals that uh, show the unmistakable presence of belief in um, the inner self, what, what, what I'll just continue to anachronistically call mm. the soul, okay? Yes. Um, the immaterial self, if you will. Um, we have uh, evidence of it, though, again, not, not as uh, concrete or as undebatable in even uh, earlier species of humans. And in fact, increasingly now, there is evidence of such belief in certain um, animals, in elephants, um, certain species of, of chimpanzee, etc. Okay. Wow. So that's a fact. That's a scientific fact. Now you can say, okay, well, all of, all of that is just based on some trick of the mind or some you know, false pretense, and that's perfectly fine. It's a fine uh, way of, of thinking about it. But what doesn't change is the, the universality of this belief. So that's the first thing. Now, when confronted with that fact, a scientist has to try to explain why that exists. So certainly the best explanation is that it's inherent to our evolution as a species. If it predates our species, <laughs> then it must be something that is a part of our evolution. It is uh, a part of the adaptive advantage of what it means to be Homo sapien. Well, for about 200 years, we've been trying to figure out what exactly the adaptive advantage of such a belief could be. And without boring your listeners uh, about the whole thing, let me just cut to the chase and say that we don't know. <laughs> the answer is we have no idea. The literally, we don't have any idea because the one thing that evolutionary biologists and cognitive scientists seem to agree upon is that far from being an adaptive advantage, faith or belief in the immaterial self is a profound disadvantage, certainly when it comes to uh, energy, resources, all of which should be spent on survival and not on expressing or trying to relate to the immaterial world. <laughs> so we don't know. The answer is we just don't know why this is a universal phenomenon. It's an evolutionary puzzle. Uh, the best answer that, that I think many cognitive scientists have given is that it's just an accident. It's just some evolutionary byproduct of some other adaptive advantage 
um, that arose very early in our uh, evolution. And this is kind of an echo of it and hence its universality, but it has no, no advantage whatsoever. Okay. The second, the second fact that has to be understood is that these same cognitive scientists and a host of psychiatrists and psychologists have done extensive research on children. And again, what they have discovered is that belief in the soul as an immaterial essence of yourself is a belief that you are born with. It is not a learned belief that children from all cultures, uh, from all parts of the world, whether they were raised in religious societies or not, when asked a series of questions about themselves and their experience of the world, almost always reflect belief in the soul. Again, I'm using the word soul mm. as, a, as a shorthand for inner essence, immaterial selves, eternal selves, whatever, however you want to put it. So in other words, this is a belief that we have to unlearn as we grow older. Now, what does that mean for atheist or, or the materialist, the person who says, there is no soul, this is all nonsense? Is that person living life to its full intent? You know, I guess it depends on your point of view, right? <laughs> right. If it's, you know, what you're, what you're essentially rejecting is a universal impulse that we are born with. Mm -hmm. Now, just because that's the case doesn't mean it's correct. It may be something that we have to grow out of. It may be something that we should unlearn. But nevertheless, if you are a person of faith or, you know, if you are even, I think you use the word faith adjacent, <laughs> um, <laughs> If you're even if you're even you know interested in such ideas, I think it is necessary to stop and ask yourself why? Why are we born with this universal impulse? Mm -hmm. Now, God doesn't have to be the answer to that question. <laughs> the answer doesn't have to be because we were made that way with purpose by a divine will for a particular goal. That doesn't have to be the answer, but I do think that simply saying, because that's what it means to be human, because what it means to experience the human condition means experiencing it beyond the material realm. Mm. And that's why our brains have the capacity to do so, that that's not something that you should ignore that it's something that you should actually pursue because it is fundamental to the human condition. That's not a crazy thing to say, right? That's not a, <laughs> that's not a you know, artsy-fartsy, spiritual, yoga, granola statement. <laughs> that's a statement borne out by data and scientific evidence. It reminds me of the yawn or the hiccup, for instance. <laughs> also, innate human practices that we are born with that have predated our species that we don't yet fully understand. And what, what you're kind of implying there, if I can use this metaphor, is that you're saying that we could go through life suppressing every yawn or not yawning and have a perfectly okay life. But 
are we yes. are we in some ways yet yeah, suppressing a part of ourselves if we decide not to yeah. yawn ever in our lifetime see i took that beautiful expressive <laughs> po- poetic description you gave and i brought it down to a simple yawn <laughs> <laughs> but i you know i i think that the you know the the analogy fits in the sense that can you live a, a full and satisfying life without the experience of transcendence? Sure. Mm. Is the experience of transcendence universal and endemic to the human condition? Yes. Does that fact mean that you should at the very least be open to the possibility that you are meant to experience such things and that closing you yourself <laughs> off from it is closing yourself off from a vital cognitive process mm. um, that uh, you're born with. And that you don't yet understand. That you don't yet understand, yes. exactly. So I want to move on to you and your personal journey. But before I do so, I've got one very profound and powerful question, I think. Um, I want to talk about the role of personal responsibility in faith mm. because many Christians will speak of God's will and Muslims refer to, inshallah, um, the will of Allah. Uh, Taoists and Confucians are quite literally trying to align themselves with the natural way of Tian or heaven. And there are many people in many situations that I have observed where this belief in the divine can actually prevent people from making positive changes in their lives and in their communities. At what point do you think our faith in a divine power or guiding principle becomes detrimental or destructive due to our own inaction? When the concept of good and evil comes into play, mm. when we start thinking about good and evil as cosmic phenomena instead of human actions mm. and therefore human responsibilities, when we start saying that good is, um, you know, the essence of, uh, of God and evil is the essence of a devil, and that these cosmic forces are in battle with each other and have been in battle with each other long before we came onto the stage, and they will be long after we're gone. That if anything, we're just simply pawns in this cosmic battle between the forces of good and evil, between the angels of light and the demons of darkness. And so therefore, we can't really be held responsible for our actions that those actions have a cosmic source to them, that's when the trouble begins, right? right. Um, I, I think people, people are, are confused about this. What we understand as the devil or Satan or sort of uh, evil personified is barely 3,000 years old. It's, oh. it's, the, it's fundamentally the invention of the prophet Zarathustra in Iran at about uh, around 1100 BCE. And when you really study sort of the history of the devil, the history of Satan, it makes this reality so obvious <laughs> that that was just simply this this being had to be created from whole cloth, just had to be invented from yeah. scratch. Right. Um, because it, it is the inevitable result of monotheism, right? You you can't believe in a singular God without a safety valve, right? right. You need you need someone to be responsible for everything that's bad. Even if that person doesn't exist, you just invent that being. And that's fundamentally how the concept of 
the devil or Satan or Ahriman or however you want to refer to it arose. So, you know, what I always say to people all the time is that really is the foundation of so much that is wrong with religious people and the way that they act in the world is this kind of belief that good and evil are cosmic phenomena and not just (laughs) your actions on earth. Humans making a decision. Yeah. You're not being (laughs) manipulated by anything, any force. It's just you. (laughs) Right. Now, your personal expression of faith has been a very evolving journey. You grew up in a home that you describe as casually Muslim, and then you aligned yourself with evangelical Christianity and then eventually returned to Islam. Did your sense of faith change as your external rituals and doctrines changed, or has it remained sort of like a constant spiritual compass through all of that? Yeah, no. In fact, uh, you know, we sort of alluded to this earlier in Mm. the conversation yeah, no, it was, it was simply looking for a way to express the faith that I already had. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, what was wonderful about Christianity it was that it was, it was a deeply emotional experience. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, the anthropomorphic God is addictive. It's enormously appealing. I say this in a, in a um, you know, casual and offhand way, but I don't mean to diminish it at all. It's the reason why Christianity is the largest Um, most successful religion in the history of the world and very likely will continue to be is because it answers the most complicated question possible. Mm. What is God in the easiest way possible? (laughs) God's a man. That's it. Yeah. So just imagine a perfect man. Imagine a man who is perfectly good, perfectly kind, perfectly compassionate. That's God. Well, what's easier? There's nothing easier than that. There's right. nothing easier than than that. You ask a Taoist, what is God? Oh, no. <laughs> you ask, you know, a Muslim, what is God? Mm. You ask a Jew, what is God? If you get an answer, it, it'll fry your brain. Yeah. Um, well, the Taoists but, say that God, there are no words to describe God. If you're, using, right. words, yeah. if you're using the words, then it's not God you're describing. Yeah, that is not a satisfying answer. <laughs> a satisfying answer is, oh, just imagine the most perfect man you've ever known, mm-hmm. and that's God. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's enormously appealing, obviously, but it didn't take long for my faith to clash with my religion. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason why I went back to Islam, and more specifically Sufi Islam, is that I finally found a language to express what I already believed. That's so awesome. Now, Eudaimonia Podcast is all about flourishing. How has your faith allowed you to flourish in life? Oh, well, besides making a career out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Quite literally, quite literally uh, allowing myself to flourish. Uh, You know, look, I think when I look at the world and I look at the political and socioeconomic conflicts, that are roiling both my country and and the planet. Uh, you know, I have the ability, I think, to provide a lens that helps to decode and and understand those conflicts mm-hmm. sometimes. And that lens comes from not just my own personal expression of faith, but also my understanding of religion as a form of identity, as a kind of language. And so. It utterly affects how I see myself and the world and my place in it. 
And it also, you know, has a huge impact on my relationship with my family and mm. the way that I experience, you know, my children and my wife and uh, and my the world around me. I mean, I'm sort of, as I say in my newest book, I'm a, a proud pantheist. And so for me, um, there is no division between creator and creation. And so the way that I express my uh, awe and devotion to the creator is by expressing those things to creation. It, it's hard to sort of even talk about uh, in the abstract because it's basically who I am and, and everything that I do and think and, and experience in the world is, is tinged by my, my faith. So my last question, Risa, is one that I ask all of my guests. Can you offer a morning reminder, so a daily practice, a ritual, or an affirmation that my listeners can adopt to unlock an authentic sense mm. of faith or perhaps strengthen the faith that they already have? Well, so I mentioned Zarathustra a little while ago, great Iranian prophet. Um, his movement ultimately gave birth to what we now call Zoroastrianism and had a profound influence, obviously, in the creation of Christianity. Zarathustra had a very simple sort of affirmation of faith. Um, and you may have heard it before. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Mm. That's it. Yes. In Zoroastrianism, the idea is that upon your death, your good thoughts, your good words, and your good deeds will be weighed alongside your bad thoughts, your bad mm. words, and your bad deeds. And if the good outweighs the bad, then paradise is yours. And I really like that idea because it's so forgiving, right? It has, there's so much room for error in that idea. It's not that you can only pursue good. It recognizes that you are going to screw up. That your, your day <laughs> yeah. is going to be full of bad thoughts, bad words, and bad deeds. But, and, and maybe this is more of a, end of day affirmation than it is a beginning of the day affirmation. If at the end of the day, you can say to yourself, my good words, my good mm -hmm. thoughts, and my good deeds outweighed the bad thoughts and the bad words and the bad deeds, then you did fine. That's awesome. But I think holding that intent at the beginning of the day through the day helps us le lean yeah. into goodness too throughout the day, right? Walk out, walk out the door saying to yourself, Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. And for anyone who hasn't yet read Reza's book, God, A Human History, I thoroughly recommend it. I bought it and consumed it in a day last year. So um, anyone who's really interested in, in faith and and the creation of God and the creation of, of religion, it's a fascinating journey through human history. Now, Reza, anyone who wants to learn more about you and your work and your upcoming books and television series, where can they go to find you? Uh, you can go to rezaaslan.com. And there will be a link to that on my website as well. Reza, I am so incredibly grateful for you, your time, your wisdom, and those 20 years of study that you've done, that you've shared with us here today on the Eudaimonia <laughs> podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. As Martin Luther King Jr. once said, faith is taking the first step, even when you don't see the whole staircase. You've been listening to the Eudaimonia podcast. If you'd like to learn more about how to live a truly flourishing life, please subscribe and check out eudaimoniapod.com for more inspiring episodes. I'm Kim Forrester. Until next time, be well. 
Be kind to yourself and keep the faith. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.